James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you want to read out loud with me, you can. Uh, This is printed in your bulletin. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has been shown No mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our rock, our fortress, and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a young fish was... Enjoying a first swim on an early spring morning, trying out his new fins, and an older fish comes up beside the young fish and says, how's the water this morning? The young fish goes, what's water? You you get that, right? The young fish is so unaware of the environment that he's in, that it's in, it's, it's swimming, doesn't even realize that it's swimming in water. Today we're going to look and talk as a church about the water we're swimming in, as a culture, as a church together. And the goal of today's sermon, really, is that we would become, like this young fish in the story, more aware of the water that we are swimming in every day as a congregation. As you know, we're doing a winter sermon series around what is our new 10-year vision as a congregation. And here's what we're asking God to do over the next 10 years. By God's grace, we seek to be a people deeply transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who plant churches and become cross-cultural disciples and pursue biblical justice, starting in downtown Raleigh. And today, we are looking again at that tree visual that we've had every time, and this is where the metaphor begins to break down. You know, we have an apple tree on that uh, drawing for you, and we've looked at the roots, and we've looked at one of the fruit, which was 
church planting. And now we're going to look at another fruit. And of course, no apple tree you've ever seen has more than one kind of fruit on it. But just give us this one. Give us a buy on this one. Um, So here's where we're going to go. For the next five Sundays, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be cross-cultural disciples. And we're going to have a few seminars on that subject coming up as well. Uh, Now, this is not the first time I have spoken about race and the gospel in our church. In fact, in 2015, I did another sermon series that was entirely about race and the gospel, and that was sort of the 101 level. And if you want to go back and listen to those, those are linked off of our website. You can find those off of that. They'll also be on social media. This is more of a 201 level. So if you want to go back and get the the introductory courses, you can. So let's look at this section in the book of James about the sin of partiality. Now, many of you have probably studied the book of James before. You know, it is a very practical book in the New Testament. James is not concerned with delving into the depths of theology. This isn't like the book of Romans or Galatians. This is, James is uh, speaking very much to the practices, the behaviors of the local church and what he sees. And so he talks about the need for good works to always accompany faith. He talks about things like the danger of the tongue, of gossiping, of complaining. He teaches about doubts and faith. He, he talks about the power of prayer and being a praying church. And so this passage about the sin of partiality is one that I think a lot of us tend to sort of glide past. Out of all the heavy lifting in the book of James, this one seems like a relatively minor issue. And yet this is incredibly dangerous and destructive to the work of Christ. So what is the sin of partiality? And I'm just going to go through this very quickly. Five things we see here about partiality. First, it's a community sin. The sin of partiality is a community sin. It's not just about one individual favoring another individual. It's about something that's happening when the church was gathered. So James is talking about a gathering of Jesus' people and favoritism being shown to a rich person over poor people. Look again at uh, at his teaching. He says, uh, verse 3, one person is sort of directing what's happening. Somebody comes in, very wealthy, and somebody says, you sit here. You, You get the best seat. But what makes this a community sin is that no one else says, hey, that's not cool. Right? This is happening in the context of a gathering, and no one speaks up. So it's silently going along with partiality. So it's a community sense. Second, we see it mimics the world. See, what Paul is, I mean, James is describing here is soup du jour of the Roman world that they were living in. That the rich had all the benefits, the poor had none. It's a worldly system that James is saying, you guys have just adopted this blindly into the practice of your church. We're just mimicking the world. We're imitating how the, the world functions And his entire letter is about how we're going to live differently from the world in the way that we use our tongue, in the way we think about loving our neighbors, about caring for the poor. I mean, there's lots of things here that are about being distinct from the world. Third, the the sin of partiality is about who has a voice, who has power. You know, it's it's not just about a chair. It sort of sounds like that in verse 3. But listen to the words, pay attention. 
This is what James says. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while to the poor man you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then make distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The partiality is not just about who gets what chair, but who gets what position of influence in the group. Who gets the microphone or who gets the gavel? Who gets to be, have, have the most influence in the group. It's about who has a voice, who has power. And then four, partiality smears the name of Jesus. It's really interesting. Verse 1 and verse 7, kind of bookends of this section. James is really concerned with Jesus' reputation. He speaks in both cases about Jesus' name being defamed, being uh, slurred or smeared because of the actions of the group. Jesus' reputation. And finally, partiality is antithetical to the gospel. James goes on to say that partiality is a sin. It's breaking God's law. So verses 9 through 13, he connects this really specifically to the Ten Commandments. He says, look, if you show this sin of partiality, if you break one part of the law, you're breaking all of it. It's all there. And and in a sense, what he's doing is saying, look, you're undoing what Jesus by his power on the cross, accomplished. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus broke down the barriers of separation. Now, he's speaking there in Ephesians about between Jew and Gentile, but the relationships between us. He broke down the hostility and the barrier, and you're erecting a new wall. So this is antithetical to the gospel. So we need to think, what is the sin of partiality in our day and age? And, of course, there are lots of ways this could be carried out. It could still be carried out, as James speaks about here, between rich and poor. But we live in the United States. And one of the ways that this has been expressed over and over in our country is around racism. Is around race. Think about it. Race, racism, in all forms, is a community sin. It mimics the world. It's about who has influence, who has power, uh, it smears the name of Jesus, and it's antithetical to the gospel. What's more, we have reason to believe, especially in an American context, that this sin is especially egregious in God's eyes. Now, there's a common misconception that's held up in a lot of churches that all sins are equally heinous. Now, all sins equally require the death of Jesus Christ, his blood being paid for them. But our confessional document as a church, the Westminster Larger Confession, says there are sins that are more heinous based on these factors. The persons that are offending, the persons who are offended, the nature and quality of the offense, and the circumstances of time and place. And so you can look back on American history. You could say, wow, this is particularly a heinous and destructive sin. You know, it's come from persons, I'm going to quote the confession here, of greater experience of grace, or from those whose example is going to be followed by others. It's been done against fellow saints in the church, against the common good of all as well. It's been, it's often entailed sinning on the Lord's day. And I could go on using the language, the, the confessions, forceful language. Now it's old language to us, but it says things like this. Sins done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, imprudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, and with delight. And that does describe the history of our country and how race has been embedded in the culture. It's in the soil. It's in the water. 
You know, it's, it's in our history. And, and here's the thing. I bet most people in our congregation, even most people in our city would say, yes, racism is destructive. It's been very destructive in the history of our, of our country. And it's a sin that I really don't want to have anything to do with. Um, we could identify things as racist like racial jokes, uh, racial oppression, racial insensitivity. And we probably acknowledge that racism in all those forms is destructive and wrong. But here's the other thing. The last thing that you and I ever want to be accused of is being a racist. This is the hardest thing for anyone to admit in themselves. This is the sin nobody wants to be repenting of. Uh, That's not us, not racist, not here, right? Um, But here's what I want to talk about this morning. Like the two fish in the beginning, it's in the water. This is all around us. We are living in a racialized culture, a, a culture that is infected with the sin of partiality. It's not just part of our history. It's still part of our present. And here's my goal for today, that we would begin to see the water. So, so what's in the water? Let me give you another fish and water story. This isn't, uh, this isn't for me. I uh, took this from somebody else. But uh, let's say you go for a walk this afternoon at one of the many lakes around Raleigh. We've got lots of beautiful lakes, lots of uh, nice trails you can go walk around. And as you're walking around this lake, you realize, wow, there's a dead fish on the side of the water here. Keep walking you walk along, you see another dead fish. You walk another 10 minutes, another and another. And you begin to think, huh, I think there's a fish problem in this lake. That's essentially what's happening in our culture now with regard to race. Yes, people say, wait, it's been 50 years since the civil rights movement. And yes, we could agree that there have been many advances. I mean, heck, we've, we've had an African-American president. Uh, we aren't still in the Jim Crow South. Um, and yet, there's a lot of tension around race. This may really bug some of you. And, and you may think, why does everything have to be about race? Why is this always coming up? Isn't, isn't this focus on race actually dividing us and making things worse? So real talk this morning. Um, you're watching the news, and there's a story about a domestic violence situation in a non-white community. Or you're with another a group of parents, and they're complaining about how there's just a couple of kids in your kid's elementary school class who are disruptive, and they keep kind of delaying everything, and they also happen to be children of color. Or you read an online story of someone who is working the system with regard to welfare, a uh, person of color, and what, what happens? We start to talk about fish problems. What's wrong with those fish? Uh, why, do they, why do we have underperforming fish in this lake? Why can't they thrive on this lake like I'm thriving in this lake? My family's thriving. Um, this isn't the lake it was 50 years ago. We've done a lot of good to clean up this lake in the last 50 years. We've had so much progress in lake, lake life. And so, you know, we, you can go to things like, well, we need to start maybe an after-fish school program. You know, or, or we need to come up with um, a ministry that's going to pull a few of these fish up before they end up dying on the beach. We love problem solving. You know, that, that's just who Americans are. We go overseas, especially in missions context, and the Americans are always the ones to fix the problems. Um, but what happens after you start that program or that ministry? You go out, again, walking around the lake one day, 
And you look around, and there's more dead fish. Another one. And another one. And, and here's the problem. Here's what we don't often ask. What if the problem is not the fish? What if there's a lake problem? What if there's something in the water? You know, listen to what sociologists keep telling us about what's happening in America. The incredible gaps between races. The wage gap, the performance gap, the income gap, the education gap, the rates of incarceration of black men, for example, versus other demographics. I have a ton of these. Let me give you a few. For example, there was a study done between 2000 and 2015 in the city of Charleston. And they looked at infant mortality and poverty levels, 15-year high school dropout rates, and so on. And what they found across the board over this 15-year period is that the, there's not a single indicator in the city of Charleston during that time in which African-Americans' well-being was anywhere near with being on par of that of white Charlestonians. In fact, the disparities were profound. In our own state, in North Carolina, there have been numerous studies on for measures against, uh, about child welfare or health or education or criminal justice, economic well-being, and they show that, that indicators show that blacks are two to five times more likely to have bad outcomes across systems in North Carolina than whites. This is looking at things like health, like um, rates of death for diabetes, infant mortality rates, education, reading levels in third grade or Long-term suspensions from school. This is looking at criminal justice, incarceration rates, vehicle search at routine traffic stops. It's looking at child protective services, the number of kids in foster care. It's looking at economics. Children below 200% poverty level, uh, the poverty line, unemployment. In each case, there's a, a graph that looks exactly the same. Whites with the best outcomes, blacks with the worst outcomes, and then down, it always goes Asian, Latino, first people in every category. And this isn't just done in North Carolina. This study has been done over and over in California, in Texas, Ohio, Utah, Massachusetts, nationally. You know, according to Human Rights Watch, although whites are more likely to violate drug, uh, drug laws to be using illegal substances than people of color, in some states, black men have been sent to prison on drug charges at rates 20 to 50 times greater than white men. African Americans constitute 15% of drug users in this country, illegal drug users, yet 90% of those incarcerated for drug charges. In fact, uh, I, I saw this in the News and Observer in November. In 1950, black men in the U.S. earned 51 cents on average for every dollar earned by white men. Today, let me ask you this question. How much do black men earn on average for every $1 that a white man earns? Do you know? The correct answer is 51 cents. It hasn't changed in 70 years. The wages of black men rose more rapidly than those of white men in the 1950s and 60s, but ever since have risen more slowly. And one important cause of that is mass incarceration, which disproportionately affects black communities uh, with often lifelong economic penalties. In addition, the average black household has 60% of the average household uh, income on average 
compared to a white household, and yet has only 10% of the average household wealth. Now, why would that matter? Well, average household wealth is what helps send kids to college and start small businesses, uh, helps people survive crises in family like divorce or uh, some kind of health issue. What's amazing about that statistic to me is the number of extremely wealthy African-Americans that we know of in our culture. There are um, pop stars and movie stars. I mean, 75% of the NBA is African-American. 80% of the the NFL is African-American. Think of of Oprah or Tyra Perry. And, of course, there are lots of poor white people. Think of rural America or Appalachia. But still, that the average black family still only has one-tenth of the wealth of the average white family? So, said another way, and I know I'm picking on whites and blacks because they are actually at the ends of the spectrum. Whites have only 25% or 60% as much of a chance of having a bad outcome in any of these areas than blacks or Latinos, Asians, or first people in the United States. And this is a scenario which people call white advantage. It means simply that there is a, there's an advantage to being white in the United States. There's partiality in our system. Now, I know some people really struggle with that phrase. But if it, white advantage doesn't mean that if you're a white person, your life isn't hard. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you haven't had real trauma or suffering or hardship in your life. It only means that you're, if you're a person of color... On, lo- on average, your life is likely harder. Ken Weitzema puts it this way. He says, it means that even if you're the unluckiest white person in the, born in the United States, you're still born into the fortunate race. Historically, so this has been systematized, formalized in systems like redlining, a bank practice, or things like neighborhood covenants that have kept uh, segregated neighborhoods. But it's also informal. It comes out in ways that are actually really small and may be hard for particularly white people to even notice. Things like cosmetics. You know, going to the store and having a hard time finding more than one kind of shampoo option for your kind of hair. Or buying skin tone bandages or makeup that can match your skin color. Uh, It comes out in things like representation. Seeing people who look like you in favorable categories in media. Implicit trust. Being given the benefit of doubt in sort of uh, neutral situations. Like you're at the airport, you accidentally pick up the wrong bag that belongs to someone else, and being given the benefit of the doubt or not in that situation. Or safety and trust in institutions. Not needing to educate your kids on how to interact with authority figures in the same way. See, at some point, it's appropriate for the church to ask the question, What if there's something wrong with the lake? What if these aren't fish problems, but lake problems? You know, see, much of the talk about racial disparities or performance comes back to things like, oh, the welfare state, or the decline of the black family, or a culture of laziness, but all of those are fish solutions to fish problems. What's What's the problem with that kind of a fish? You know, why can't those fish get it together? Certain kinds of fish get it together. Why can't other kinds of fish? I mean, I'm a fish and I'm okay, right? But what if there's a water problem? Let me tell you another story. I love to hike at Umstead Park. It's the local state park in the middle of the triangle, and it's a beautiful place. 
And you can go hike, and you can feel like you are way outside of the city. And there's the, the, all of Umstead Park is just teeming with life. Now, there's a creek that flows through the middle of Umstead. Anybody know what that creek is? Crabtree Creek. Okay, Crabtree Creek. And Crabtree Creek looks good. I mean, there's not tires in it. There's not trash floating in it, especially at Umstead. Um, they clean it up regularly. And yet there's a sign. And every time you go to Umstead, I see the same sign. And it shows a picture of all the fish that are in there. And it gives this warning. It says, the human body can metabolize one fish per month out of this water. In other words, there's so many toxins in the fish at Crabtree Creek that, like, you can eat one a month, and it won't hurt you, but you can't eat more than that, which makes me go, I don't, I'm good. You know, I'm not going to eat, I don't want to fish or eat a thing out of Crabtree Creek. Like, it looks healthy, but there's something wrong. And here's the thing. It's not just the dead ones on the bank. All the fish in Crabtree Creek are infected. The reality is that we live in this water. And, and all the water is sick. We live in a partialized society, a racialized society. And I would love to escape that. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love for that just to, like, wave a magic wand and go away? But can I just, if you're having a hard time with this sermon, can I remind you that we don't have a hard time saying this about other sins? For example, in the 80s, when it was all about, remember, the me first culture? You know, it's all about how many toys can I get before I die. We didn't, as a church, have a hard time saying we live in a materialistic culture. We don't have a hard time, in many other cases, defining cultural sins that infect the water. And I think that is also true with this sin, partiality. Again, my thesis is this. Our culture is infected with the sin of partiality, and it affects all of us, not just some of us. Yes, it's disproportionately hurting people of color, but all the fish are affected by what's in the water. So, two applications out. First is, that includes white people. How are white people hurt by swimming in this lake? How does living in a racialized culture hurt white people? Well, several things. First, it's a barrier for white people for community. If if we live in neighborhoods and work in institutions that are stratified, where they're separated on purpose, sometimes even unconsciously, you know, it, it, it... prevents us from forming real relationships. It's a barrier to that. Intellectually, we lose, white people, we lose the opportunity to develop a full range of knowledge about ourselves, about others, about the world we live in. We're separated. There's psychological costs, uh, a loss of mental health, a loss of an authentic sense of self. We're socialized in a world where where supremacy, white supremacy presumes that white people are better in every context. And in doing so, it actually, um, it makes us, it damages us. It damages who we are. A culture that is steeped in partiality makes some people more fully human than other people. It skews our sense of reality. It damages our humanity. It is poisoning us. See, white people are also affected by this. And, of course, people of color are affected by this. Um, Those stats that I gave you are not just stats. Those are people's lives. Those are real outcomes in people's lives. But we have to be honest about this, too. The church is also in the lake. 
We got fish churches. We got fish churches in the lake filled with fish. And the church has likewise been subject to the same water and has been poisoned in many of the same ways. Just like the culture, we are separate. Martin Luther King, um, almost 60 years ago, made the observation that, that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. It still is. Over 90% of the churches in the United States have, are made up of 90% the same race. Like, the exceptions to that are very exceptional and very few. We're stuck, and we're stuck in a cycle of fear. Can I remind you how this works? This is what I see. This is the little circle we're all playing in. So the fears of white people leads them to often ignore or downplay racial issues. And that effort to dismiss racial issues feeds the fears of people of color, that racism will not be taken seriously. The fears of people of color uh, deepen through the misguided efforts of majority group members. And as a result, people of color begin to play what white people call the the race card. But at least it's upholding, hey, there's a reality to racial injustice in this country. And playing the race card, right, increases the fears of white people. They're afraid they're going to be labeled as racist for what they say or do. And as white people's fears deepen, uh, they redouble the efforts to push for colorblind philosophy. And this vicious cycle of dysfunction is being played out over and over in just about every institution, and especially in the church. Now, what is so sad to me about that is we are the people who have the truth and we have the spirit. God has poured out his gifts on the church, and yet we can't even have a conversation about this in the church. That that is tragic, and it tells me we are infected by the same water. Here's the good news. (laughs) I'm not going to let you leave without some good news this morning, that we have real gospel hope. There is real gospel hope. We do not need to despair. God has given us tools in his gospel to be able to handle this and process this. He's given us theological categories. He's given us worship practices. He has given us community experiences, which I believe will help us to see the water, help us to understand the water, help us to have hope even in this water. But there are a couple of cul-de-sacs on the road to hope. And let me just warn you about two of them. There's unhelpful and naive and even unbiblical things that happen in the church. Can I name a couple of those for us? First is denial. Um, I hear this often. Hey, we're so divided, we shouldn't focus on the things that are hard. We should focus on what unites us. Now, that sounds really good. Uh, Talking about painful things, it scares us. That's the last thing we want to do. So let's just focus on what unites us, right? Wrong. I mean, that, that's pretend. And the gospel never lets us play pretend. Did Jesus ever say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't focus on the bad things. Just focus on the good things. Or don't worry about the past. Just look ahead to the future. No, Jesus invites us to honesty and truth about self so that we can come to the cross and find cleansing and healing and hope in our confession in our restoration, in our repentance. That's the way to hope. So we don't want a a, a shortcut on that. It actually robs us of joy and freedom. Second, you know, I hear this in the church. We should just fellowship it away. You know, it's suggested that all the racial tension in our country could be resolved if we would just start having dinner together. You know, people of different races 
eating meals together and talking and talking about our experiences and things will just go away. But that's also naive and unbiblical. It's sometimes coupled with this statement. Have you heard this statement before? Oh, it's not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. Yeah. But as we read in James, sin has names. You know, the Ten Commandments, which he points us to, are not, hey, just a general thing. They're specific. And so calling out racism in all of its forms um, is really important to the body of Christ. We can't just fellowship that away. Racism is, yes, a sin problem and a sin problem in the church. The church of Jesus Christ is never called to just be okay with coexisting with deep sin issues and just letting them sit while we eat dinner together. That may make fellowship may make more, for more friendly fish, but it's not fixing the lake. See, outside the church, we get other solutions. Like, this is one that's very common. Many people who are promoting racial equity think education will get rid of this. If we give people all the education, then this will suddenly fix things. Now, don't get me wrong. Education on race, on inequities, um, to stay with my analogy, studying the lake, that'll help. That will help. That's why we promote, as a church, REI training. It's not Christian-based. They don't, they don't, their outcomes, their suggestions for how we fix the lake are off. But their observations and understanding of the lake we're in are really helpful. See, education that doesn't deal with the complexities of the human heart that we know of in Scripture, that doesn't deal with that, um, doesn't fix things. After all, Scripture tells us the demons have their theology straight. Uh, Adam and Eve, it wasn't a lack of knowledge that led them to eat the forbidden fruit. Uh, education doesn't fix things. Now, here's the, ho- here's the real hope, and this is what I want to give us as we look forward. It's only found in Jesus. It's only found with a community of people, the church, armed with the tools of the gospel and with a remarkable courage to be able to take a hard look at the water. See, only in Jesus, with a community of people, the church, armed with the tools of the gospel and a remarkable courage. So here's where we're going over the next four weeks. We're going to unpack the gospel toolbox. Danny Yancey is going to preach for us and talk about why we would look at our worship and look at our preferences and think about cross-cultural worship. I'm going to talk about how do we think in biblical categories about some of the language that we're hearing. We're going to talk about facing our history. We're going to have two seminars on our history, both throughout broad strokes of church history and also our history as a denomination. We're having two superstars that we're bringing in for that. It's going to be, those are online. Uh, And finally, we're going to end on hope. But we are going to have to be willing to take this journey. And we can do so together without fear because of Jesus. You know, I really believe that if Jesus Christ can come to this planet, take on human flesh, and in his death on a cross and resurrection can undo the barriers between you and God, he can handle this. I I believe that he can give us healing and language and steps. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require, just like coming to Christ requires, incredible humility, a lot of looking at self, a lot of courage and honesty. And the church hasn't always been so great at that, but I have hope. I have hope, too, because we're not the only ones on this journey. For example, uh, Ligon Duncan, a very prominent pastor in our denomination, has said this, anti-racism is not the gospel, but the gospel is anti-racism. 
And racism is anti-gospel, hence the heresy of deepest die. We're seeing lots of churches who are willing to begin to take steps. We're not alone in this. We need cross-cultural discipleship, and, and not just in a few sermons this year, but in an ongoing way. We're going to continue to do that as a church. This is deep in our culture. It's deep in the water, and it's going to take a lot to change that. But again, why? Why would we do this? Can I use another fish story? It's because Jesus has called us to fish. Remember, when Jesus started his earthly ministry, he was walking by another lake, he comes upon two fishermen, Simon Peter and his brother. He says, come follow me and I will make you, you remember what he says? Fishers of men. See, this is the calling of the church, that we want to be a, a, a church that has integrity, that is about fulfilling the Great Commission. This work of cross-cultural discipleship is essential business for us. It is essential business, particularly in the South, particularly in the state capital, and particularly if we want to plant churches and see people come to Christ. If we're going to be fishers of men, we have to see the water. And so here's my request of all of you. Would you stick around? I know some of you are already upset, and you're afraid. And I understand. You know, there's a lot of ways that this is a hard conversation to have. And it's scary. But don't cancel culture this conversation. Stay with us. Hang in. Here's the real hope. Only in Jesus, with a community of God's people, with the tools of the gospel, and a remarkable courage to take a hard look at the water together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is beyond us. Uh, Lord, this has been, it's an overwhelming topic to take on for many people. For others, this is where we live every day. And Lord, I pray that our church would have courage to face the sin of partiality in ourselves and in our church, in our community, and in our country. And that by doing so, Father, you might bring hope and healing. Lord, we don't want to be those who just look at the word and walk away. We want to be profoundly changed. Lord, give us hope and courage. Help us to encourage one another in these things. Lord, bring us to a new place. Lord, we long to see how your redemption is going to be worked out among your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.